Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is August 16th. You will be hearing this on August 17th. We have a special guest today. Um, she is Julie Ha. She is one of the directors of the new film, documentary film, Free Chulsu Lee, which um, I don't know. I enjoyed the conversation we had. Uh, Tammy, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, she was great. And I think um, I'm glad that the film's getting so much attention right now. Yeah, it's a good film. Um, and I would, you know, as somebody who doesn't really watch television or enjoy movies, <laughs> I would just say that, you know, especially since we're not talking to her right now. <laughs> but it was good. Um, and I think and you're, everyone... make, you're like deep in documentary land yourself right now. So, right. But that would make me dislike it more, I think. You know, I know. That's I, what I mean. But... It's the fact that you liked it all right is a good compliment, you know? No, I thought it was quite good. <laughs> and um, it was, you know, it's powerful. I guess the story that um, was familiar to me, but I don't think it's familiar to too many other people. And the reason why it's familiar to me was because yeah. at some point I was going to write about it, but. Um, it didn't really quite work out, but I think I'm glad that I didn't in a lot of ways, because I think that this documentary is much better than what I would have been able to come up with, because like, there's just so much visual stuff that you see in the course of the documentary that is quite powerful. It's stuff that I'm sure that many, many people have never seen before. And so we have that conversation coming up, but at first, I, you know, Tammy, I wanted to talk about this thing going around, right? I sent this to you. <laughs> And it's called Power. It's this paper that came out, right? I don't know if it's called a paper or whatever, right? But yeah, I think it it's a out, white paper, basically, right? Right. This past week, and it, you know, it was a lot of different organizations are behind this, like the mm -hmm. Asian Pacific America Labor Alliance, which uh, you said is like an affinity group within the AFL CIO, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, the Equality Labs. I don't know what that is, but it sounds. What is Equality Labs? Equality Labs is a sort of like innovation-y kind of like social justice nonprofit. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And then SALDEF, right, which is the Sick American mm -hmm. Legal Defense and Education Fund. Viet Fact Check, which is a sort of newish type of thing where I think yeah. they're, I don't, I don't really know what that I is. I hadn't heard of that. Yeah, it's a lot. I saw some of their work earlier, like publicized by like NBC Asian America or something like that, gotcha. right? Okay. So it is a, I don't know, for lack of a better word, it is sort of a coalition of Asian American nonprofit organizations yeah. coming out with this long paper and that the paper is called power platforms and politics, Asian Americans and disinformation. Right. And, um, they call them, this group calls themselves the Asian American disinformation table. Is that right? Yes. What does that mean? Like, you know, like <laughs> it's like a lunch table. In the I mean, I know there's table. a lot of sort of like nonprofity kind of, you know, corporate jargon in this paper but i think they have actually a definition table where they talk about the definition of a table which is kind of <laughs> oh really okay well i don't know i mean we don't even have to go into that but, but anyway. this is like in my mind look this is like basically the clearest evocation of where a lot of the conversation around politics identity politics is gonna go in the future and um i want to talk about it a little bit because basically the thesis of this argument is that all retrograde and sort of problematic asian american politics are all the result of disinformation campaigns, right? So they talk about, like, for example, they say anti-affirmative action and, quote, reverse racism, and they label this under disinformation. And they say, quote, while these types of policies have assisted Asian and Asian American students, there are some who oppose affirmative action by claiming the policies unfairly disadvantage them. Narratives on, quote, reverse racism against Asian and Asian American communities and racist remarks about Black and Latino 
ah, X communities have been used to oppose affirmative action. These narratives have circulated widely to promote Chinese right-wing agendas, including partnerships with Edward Bloom and his organization, Students for Fair Admissions, in a lawsuit against Harvard, and conservative formations such as the Silicon Valley Chinese uh, Association to oppose California's SCA-5. An example of an intervention against this narrative includes Viet Fact Check's article falsifying the claim that affirmative action hurts Asian Americans, right? Like, I mean, like, this type of stuff drives me crazy. I know know it does. Like, I mean, what's your take about it before I go on, like, some, like, unhinged Well, no, I want you to finish your argument. I have some thoughts about the report, but I think in in the main, I agree with, in terms of, like, their uses of disinformation as, like, a category. Right, right. So like basically they're and they are they talk about like cacao talk, right? They talk about mm-hmm. WeChat and they say these are big hubs of disinformation, right? Like foreign Just language media <laughs> is like a big hub of disinformation. And like my thing about this always is basically just that like it's so clear what the politics of the people who are behind this are, right? And it's so clear that like something like does affirmative action in higher, you know, in elite colleges, for example, does it harm Asian Americans? Now, you know, one does not have to have a definitive answer about that to support affirmative action or not support affirmative action. In fact, I think that like it's quite obvious, at least to me, that like, you know, at some of these elite colleges that affirmative action probably does harm Asian Americans in some way. Right. Like, I mean, I think that anyone with a with any type of attention span thinks that. And I think that 95% to 98% of Asian Americans think that regardless of how they feel about affirmative action overall. Including, and the harm being that it is harder for them to get into schools. Right, it's harder to, right? for them to That's get into the, schools, right? Yeah. Than white kids or, for, or black kids or Latino kids, whatever, right? It's harder for Asian American yeah. kids to get into school. I don't know a single Asian American person who seriously doesn't actually think that. And so then like, what is this, right? Like, this is like, Nonprofit organizations basically saying the thing that everybody thinks is actually disinformation, right? And like, it is such, like, I just find it to be so weird and counterproductive, right? Like, I was just like, yeah. well, are you saying that everybody has been fooled and that you're the only ones that are correct? And also, like, how do you make like a, what is essentially a value judgment, right? And then you just say, no, it's obviously false. I think right? that's what was hard right. for me in the report. I mean, there are, so I guess like to give it, it's, the most benefit of the doubt. Like it is true that there is like factual disinformation and like deliberate misinformation on our like ethnic platforms and channels. Of course, because right. it exists in society generally. And right. There also like, is on Facebook, right? Of course. And yeah. it'll always have like a specific like ethnic or racial tenor when it's in these like specific platforms, like, you know, Line or WeChat or Kakao, whatever. Right. Um, the report theoretically makes a distinction between things like misinformation, malinformation, disinformation, problematic narratives, right? And some other terms. But the thing is, like, I think what you're saying and what also kind of pricked my skin in the thing is that there, I think it's fine for a coalition of groups, obviously, to come together and say, like, this should be the way that we think, because that's their job to make, like, normative suggestions about things in the world. Um, But basically what they're saying is, like, instead of saying these are narratives that exist and we should combat them for X, Y, and Z reasons, they're saying that these things exist and they're fake. Right. Or, you know, and so it, it kind of is feel has like a little bit of like a gaslighting quality if you don't believe in the things that they're advocating. In the main, I believe what they, like I, I also agree that I want a world that they these people want, but I think that the way that they're describing it is like, yeah, makes you feel a little bit patronized towards. Right, but it also is like, 
I think it's extremely divisive in a way too, right? Because it's mm-hmm. like, like, look, we've had this growing divide in the in immigrant communities overall, right? But definitely within quote Asian America between like what are the what are the immigrants think and what are the second generation elites think, right? And the there is this charge that the second generation elites hold all the messaging power, which is generally true, right? Like the people who are in media, whatever, they're second generation people who went to like elite colleges almost across the board, including both of us, right? And so like uh, to say that like these people are just advancing their own agenda and they'll use whatever goal that they will do and to distance themselves from the stuff that their, you know, problematic cousins or uncles think, (laughs) like that's a very true thing. It's a real thing that happens, right? And like it needs to get better. And I feel like stuff like, and I think that there needs to be like some real assessment, even if the assessment, which I think is a totally fine assessment is to just be like, your politics are bad, you know? And which is a fair thing to say. I reject them because I think you're a racist, right? That's a fine (laughs) thing to say. And you know, some of our problematic uncles deserve to be talked about. For sure. (laughs) Like all of them. (laughs) But the problem with this is that it doesn't do that, right? Like what it does is basically just say like, oh, well, you know, like, everybody who has a thought about affirmative action or everyone who has a thought about policing, you know, after all these yeah. uh, attacks, anyone who like talks about the specific racial dynamics of some of these violent attacks, right? Like um, that they're all buying into disinformation because right. their brains are, That's a thing. they're brainwashed That's by cacao. Talk. And so like, what is the, why is so much of this messaging going in this way like it's not just this report like i said there's like a big story and like fox or big story like whenever there is this is definitely the way that the people who are on the left who are part of the ngo asian american progressive world this is where they're pushing right and the and like so much of it is about twitter it's about like these like mra dude twitter accounts spreading quote disinformation or being tankies or whatever it's just like i'm sorry like you know like being like pro China or be, being pro CCP as like a Twitter account, like it's not disinformation. It's like, you know, like it's, it's a difference of opinion. And so to like classify all this stuff and just say that these are all like the dumb immigrants and like they didn't go to Yale or they didn't go to Princeton or they didn't go to <laughs> Columbia or wherever. They don't know as well as me. Like, you know, like they don't have like the experience working and like, uh, you know, like, like whatever these people say, right? Like working in solidarity with X, Y, and Z. It is an elitist argument, right? It is a delineation of the elites versus like the unwashed masses. Now, that's one argument about it. The second argument about it, which I think is much more powerful and much more realistic, is that this is just about money, right? There's so much money going into disinformation, like fighting, quote unquote, fighting disinformation on the grant and the NGO and the nonprofit world right now, right? Like Obama, like this is going to be his big thing. It's a trend. Right. And so this is just Asian American NGO and nonprofit people basically repackaging the same stuff they always say, calling it disinformation (laughs) to get and to get to get grant dollars, right? Like what else could it possibly be? Like who is the audience? I guess the only thing I would say to you, like I get I don't disagree in the main about your arguments, but is it not worth taking seriously the possibility that there are also there is also strategic messaging? I, I like rejecting the term disinformation for now. Like just setting that aside, um, that there is strategic messaging going out to different sectors of Asian American people 
about the stuff like that, that it's not just people who are spontaneously thinking like, oh yeah, that's like bad, like affirmative action is bad for my kid. That's not working for me. Or like, oh, this police stuff is, you know, I feel a different way about it. It's also like, it is a systematic and organized thing on both sides, you know? So I think like they're trying to like, to take this seriously, I think would be okay. Well, they're, they're identifying that there are certain like conservative probably like organizations or people or politicians who are also benefiting from having Asians on their side and are like deliberately putting out some of this messaging. And so they're going to say, all right, we're going to identify that. And like, in our view, it's disinformation, but whatever you call it, you could, it's a way of like pulling it out of the weeds. Well, I guess so, except that like, I just don't think that, I think you can't separate it from the charge of disinformation within the context of this paper, right? Certainly not the paper. And like, I don't think you can even separated in terms of the way that things are trending now. Now, is it important for Asian Americans to say, hey, um, maybe it would be better for us to not act, you know, like in terms of like whatever X, Y, like to like increase police presence or, you know, start surveilling every black person who walks into Chinatown in Oakland, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Like there are real arguments that one can make. Those are not the arguments that are being made because it's all under disinformation, right? Right, right. Like those arguments no, are actually not being made. And I think the reason why they're not being made is because I think they're uncomfortable for the people to make, right? Because at some level, you're always talking about anti-blackness, right? Like, and so for people who are in yeah. NGOs or people who are part of nonprofits who are part of this kind of like woke world, for lack of a better word, right? Um <laughs> They don't want to talk about things that are uncomfortable, right? And yeah. so what is the easiest way for them to boot out of all of this is basically just like, well, nobody actually thinks any of this stuff, you know? It's all just like this mirage that was created because of the internet and because all these like, uh, you know, all these like sort of fobs don't know what which way is up. And all we have to do is like get them off Kakao Talk and put them on Twitter <laughs> following the right seven accounts, right? And not the wrong eight accounts. And then they'll all wake up and see like the 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 promise of like cross racial solidarity. It's not just spots though, like because we had talked about Leanna Louie and other folks. Like it, it right. is also people like us who just have different views. So right, I but mean, Leanna Louie, I mean, but for, I know what you're talking. For what it's worth, is like you know, like grew up mostly like half her childhood in China, and then you know, it's not she didn't go to like an elite college. She like joined the army. You know, oh, I thought she came quite early. Well, anyway, just right. to the point of like, right. I think it's not just like new immigrants. Like there definitely are second gen and third gen people who think who like also, you know, think this way. But yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying. Like, But I agree with you that like, yeah. it's not. But I mean, there are people who I went to college with who have this right, same, right, like, right. Who are, who, like Who are now right-wing reactionaries. Who are totally, right. yeah. Right. Or like Dems who like believe in police and who like are, you know, believe that affirmative action is bad for their kids. Like that's definitely a Right, thing. right, right. I mean, so, I would say that that's yeah. the norm at this point, right? Like right. that's the mainstream across of, class, of across Asian America. Across class, yeah. right. Yeah. And so that makes it even more nonsensical. Well, I know. Right? That's what I that's what I mean. I think it is like an affront to journalism, honestly, like a lot of the disinformation stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, because they can just they I can take classify, it somewhat personally. <laughs> they can classify anything that goes yeah. outside of their purview of very specific politics that are very specific to the nonprofit and the academic world. Yeah. And they can just say that anything that's not that is disinformation. Yeah. And that's what they're doing, you know? And, like, I just think it's gross, right? Like, I mean, like, and then, like, well, ganging yeah. up on, like, these, like, tiny follower accounts, right? They have, like, 800,000 followers and blasting them all the way yeah. out there and being, like, this person, you should all unfollow this person. This person is, like, a retrograde, misogynist, disgusting, like, 
racist and the person is just like some confused like 25 year old tanky that like so what is trying to figure out the world no no but like i i just find it to be like i just find it to be reprehensible right like you are enabling like like wide scale bullying of this person right so what jay's referring to if you guys haven't seen it is basically in the report itself it's screenshots like offending twitter accounts and um like with all their information and so right I like think- wesley yang is it now wesley yeah. like I, wesley's like a big enough name and he's like an adult That's- and he can handle right. it yeah. you know like and i think wesley probably thought it was all very funny right i'm sure but like there are accounts- you know? I, don't <laughs> I don't know but like okay. you know like yeah. wesley i'm sure yeah. like thought it, i'm sh- like it's a plus for wesley i imagine to be included in that report i was actually mildly <laughs> he probably offended. framed it, it was like, i was mildly offended that i wasn't that i wasn't in the report <laughs> <laughs> But like, um, but I don't know, like the, the, like singling out these like people, look, I've had interactions with them. They're mean to me too. You know, like these, the, and, but what I've found from them is that like, these are generally people who have like very specific politics right now. Are they sometimes mean to us blue checks in the media? Yes. Is that a bad thing? No. You know, like, come on. Like, you know, like, well, I I do want to take seriously like the men's rights stuff, though, because they definitely do like harass and like. Right, right, right. But some of the people who are some of the people who they singled out are not those people. Sure. But some of them are. Some of them are. Sure. I think the men's rights things actually is kind of an interesting part of this report, too, because that's another instance where it's not disinformation. It's just like rampant misogyny. Right. And I don't or know it, what, you know, like, what is the right terminology and where, what does it do for us? Like, it's interesting to read this right after we had um, Ali on here talking about Myanmar, because it's like right. in Myanmar during the Rohingya genocide, like the Facebook accounts of monks are like, Muslims are X, Y, and Z, and they're horrible, and they ruin our society. Like, that is like what I have like learned as disinformation. And then <laughs> to see it used this way is very like cynical to me and right or like hey that person's not actually dead and the person's dead you know like like that's like that's that's disinformation factual like it is a lie say turn around and being like oh this person's a misogynist and they're spreading like lies about asian women and white men and just like i don't know like you know like it's a lot of people feel that way and i think they're just disgusting but i don't think it's like i'm not sure what the information is that they're spreading i guess but that's the part where i get upset about this which is that look we've had plenty written about like men's rights uh activist asians whatever you want to call them right plenty written including a chapter of my book and five thousand different (laughs) articles that have been written by a variety of different people right and every single one of them makes the argument basically that the, this is not a good thing, right? And so to classify, I think that that is the proper response, right? Sure, we should. I say do that. not think like, that the proper response is to just say this is all disinformation, right? And like, I think well, it is I, so I wonder counter- if someone who works at one of these organizations or was involved in the report listens to the podcast, like we, we would welcome their input about like what's going on here. I don't know. Do you? I mean, like, I I just find it. Yeah, I think it's just counterproductive to the cause. You know, but maybe I'm wrong because like I well, I, made, I mean, like, to me, it's more about like it's a specific instantiation of the disinformation thing in Asian America. But as you were saying, I think it's really a larger like social phenomenon about like, why are we using these terminologies to like talk about all the uncomfortable stuff in our Internet universe? Right. Um, I guess Joe Bernstein's written about this, right, too. Like a lot of like sort of media and Internet reporters have talked about like uses and abuses of disinformation as a concept. Right. Um, well, yeah, Joe's so piece was good in the sense that like he 
really put out this term big disinfo, right? Which is like the industry around combating disinformation, which a lot of times does empower tech companies, but does also empower people like, uh, I I forget the woman's name who just keeps getting harassed now, who is like the czar of disinformation for the Biden administration. Do you remember this person? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I forget this person's name, like somebody Jankowitz or something like that, right? And she, um, but you know, that's what the, the people, like that is clearly the, And now that Obama is firmly behind it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Obama actually in his like big primer about what disinformation is linked to an article that I wrote where basically I was like making the opposite argument that I think he was really. That's so funny. I didn't see that. But one of his staffers, yeah, yeah. Interesting. um, (laughs) But like, like I just I don't know. Like I just have such a hard time with these types of arguments because it's like. Do you think that there is a single Asian American person that you can think of, right? Because we both know a lot of problematic uh, Koreans, I would say, right? Like, I at least do. Can you think of like a problematic Korean who's going to like, first of all, have any access to this, right? Or B, if they read it, would just be like, oh, yeah, my eyes have been opened. You know, I was just being lied to by like my cousin Inchul on like fucking cacao talk about all this shit. You oh, my know? God. <laughs> it's, it... I mean, it's written for organizers, right? And people who are like working in community spaces. And and that's that has its own kind of set of concerns. Like how if someone comes into your community organizing office about and says like they're angry about this affirmative action thing or about cops or whatever, and you say to them, it's hard to imagine also an organizer actually saying to them, like, no, that's not true. Like, I don't think that actually would right. even happen. So it is a little bit unclear, like, how this is supposed to be used. I guess it's an analytical framework that'll be used more for, like, journalists and intellectuals. Because um, I right, really don't think it can play out right. on the ground quite, like, well. Yeah, it's, you're right. Because it's like, you know, I talked to some organizers around here who work with Asian communities or whatever. And like the concerns about the police stuff and the attacks is very real, you know, like it's very real. And so to basically have people come in, an organizer actually can't just say, oh, you know, yeah, like your friend got beat up, you know, no, actually that's disinformation, you know, and they're like, no, actually it was my friend and they got, (laughs) you know, like you can't say that. And so that's the other thing about this 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 report almost as if it's like a comedy right or if if it's like the perfect evocation of all the stuff that we argue against on this podcast (laughs) ends with all this talk about like the radical 70s and solidarity and gidra and everything like that and just like we got to find a different narrative than this right like we can't just keep like repositioning the same story to whatever the trendy ngo nonprofit thing is and then just repainting it and saying, oh, yeah. now it's disinformation. It's the same fucking story. You just put a mask on it and call it disinformation. Know. You know, I don't know. I mean, I think the report identifies bad things that are happening in Asian America. I mean, in a way, I was saying to May, like, it's a, almost like a psychological map of the Asian American mind. Because <laughs> it's like, right. it has all of these dark recesses and like, is trying to tease them out. And I think that's fine. As you and I were just saying, like, there are ways to do that. But I think the terminology, the frame of it is like ultimately bad. Okay. Well, we can agree on that. Um, Okay. Well, (laughs) we're going to start our interview with, uh, you know, a story that I think you should learn about, right? And um, this is our conversation with the director of Free Chelsea Lee. Uh, so our guest this week, we're very excited about. Her name is Julie Ha, and she is one of the two directors of the new film, 
free uh, Charles Hooley, which is a documentary that has gotten a lot of attention over the past month, I would say. But I think it got a lot of attention back when it premiered. Julie, it premiered at Sundance. That's right, right? It did. Yeah, January. The the film is about a lot of things, right? I mean, but it is at its core, it's about this story that happened. I think that a lot of people, it's like one of these stories in Asian America in history where I feel like if you say like the name Charles Lee right before the film came out, people would say, well, I don't know what that is. But then if you start to explain it, they would like have some like memory of it, maybe. Right. Like it's something that's like right below the surface or maybe even two steps below the surface. Right. Like, I mean, what was your experience with this? You're, Not every... you're shaking your head. Yeah. No, I, I don't. I don't think so. Actually, Jay, I, I think a lot of people have never heard of this case, even if you talk to people who are um, considers themselves progressive Asian Americans right. have never heard of this case. I'm surprised um, by that. Also, yeah. um, there's a professor who's in our film, um, Richard Kim. He's an Asian American studies professor at UC Davis. Um, he said he never learned about this case in all his years of studying Asian American studies. Really? Um, this is not. Oh, wow. This is not um, uh, a history that is taught. Yes, it's not a history yeah. that is taught even in Asian American studies in colleges and universities. And that was a big motivation for why Eugene and I um, wanted to make this film. Okay, well, why don't we just why don't we just get it all out of the way? Why don't you like what is this film about, right? Like, who is Chol Su Lee? You know, like, and why why was the film made about him? Uh, Chol Su Lee uh, was a Korean immigrant um, who was wrongfully convicted of murder in San Francisco in the nineteen seventies. Um, his case caught the attention of a journalist, K.W. Lee, also a Korean immigrant, um, who. Uh, dug for the truth and discovered um, this man was um, uh, was railroaded. Um, and uh, he wrote a series of affecting stories that really galvanized um, an Asian American movement uh, that brought together a very unusual collection of people, um, including first generation Korean Americans um, and uh, such as, you know, Korean grandmothers, um, as well as um, young Asian American college activists who consider themselves politically radical. Um, they actually do succeed in freeing Chul Su Lee from prison. Um, but we also talk about um, his life afterwards and just the fact that um, he was not truly free. Right, right. Because uh, uh, Tammy, I don't want to just monopolize the conversation here, but like, <laughs> Sorry, you know, uh, so go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> No, I, I was just, um, I was struck by the film because I, I hadn't really heard of it. I mean, I knew, I sort of knew the characters around Torsuli more than Torsuli himself. Like, obviously, K.W. Lee is a sort of extraordinary figure in Korean America. Um, Julie, I know he was a mentor to you. Do you want to say a little bit about K.W. Lee and kind of what kind of journalist he was and why he also is sort of a main character in this story? Sure. Um, yeah, K.W. Lee was really a pioneering um, journalist in America. Um, as I mentioned earlier, he's an immigrant from Korea. Um, he worked um, actually at newspapers in the South. That's where he started his career, um, including in Tennessee and West Virginia. Um, and he he covered, you know, the civil rights um, struggles um, and social protests of the day. Uh, he did stories that um, that actually would uh, uh, put away some corrupt politicians, um, exposing vote buying um, in West Virginia. Uh, he embedded himself with poor working families in Appalachia um, and to humanize the stories um, of, of the poor. Uh, 
just an incredible um, uh, journalist and actually became um, quite an accomplished investigative reporter. Um, one has won dozens of awards um, for that work. Um, and then he came, he went to um, the Sacramento Union newspaper in 1970 um, and started working there as their chief investigative reporter. And that's when he would stumble upon the Chelsea Lee case. Um, and it was, he said the first time he actually worked on the case of a, of a Korean, Korean American person, um, because he had spent his career really, um, uh, telling the stories of, uh, people from other communities. And, and it was the first time. And he felt such a, um, felt a, uh, deep connection to Chelsea Lee upon meeting him. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, I should mention too, that, you know, he spent six months investigating this case on his own time um, because this murder happened in San Francisco and KW worked for the Sacramento newspaper. And so <laughs> that's really another, that. right? That's yeah. another, you guys know, uh, as journalists, that's another um, paper's town, right? Right. Um, and, um, and being the chief investigative reporter for his own paper, you know, he's expected to do exposés all the time for his own, for his own beat. Um, and so he really had to negotiate with his own city editor um, and say, like, please let me do this. You know, please let me work on this case. Um, and, and he was allowed that because he had that kind of status. But my gosh, six months of, um, of just looking at uh, studying all the, the police and court records and, and, and digging through those and then also um, driving into San Francisco Chinatown. Um, on the weekends to to do that kind of legwork and talking to actually the people on the streets to see what they knew. Um, so um, really just um, an incredible journalist um, and a force of nature too, if you've ever met him. I mean, he, right. he just- yeah. um, Right? No, I haven't met him, but you know, like I, 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 the only reason why I felt like I knew about the story beforehand was because at some point in my life, I don't even remember when it was, but I think it was almost 10 years ago, Somebody told me, I actually was trying to think about who it was. Someone told me and they're like, you know, there's this guy who moved to the United States in like the 1950s or something like that, right? Way before Heart Cellar and way before there were really any Koreans here in the United States, right? Very small amounts of Koreans, which is, you know, something that the film gets into is why he feels this connection to Chul Su Lee um, in a way and that he like could, you know, spoke English with this thick accent, right? And that he was like going around the South yeah. reporting on the civil rights movement. And to, in my brain, you know, like post, post heart seller baby, like it's like inconceivable for me to understand. Like I couldn't understand it. I felt like it was a fake story, you know? And that because I was just like, what? Like I was trying to picture this like lone, lone Korean man, like <laughs> walking around. I am not going to do like that. I, sometimes I do like offensive accents on the show. I'm not going to do it. But, you know, like going around West Virginia, in talking luck, to coal Julie. miners, going down to the South, covering the civil rights movement. You have all these like white reporters. You have black reporters for black yeah. newspapers. And then you've got yeah. this random Korean dude totally. who can't really speak English that, right at the time. <laughs> and I was like, well, who is this person? And then yeah. through that, I learned about like Chul Suley because obviously this was like mm -hmm. sort of the seminal case. And then when I was, you know, one of the things that's in the film that was really interesting to me. And I think, you know, this is I, th I have my theories and, you know, we can talk about them. But right, like with, to give the listener some context here without giving away the film, um, Chul Suley uh, because he, there weren't that many Koreans in San Francisco at the time. He kind of hung around Chinatown, right? Mm -hmm. um, which makes mm -hmm. sense, but it's not like he could speak uh, Chinese. It's not like he was part of like the 
Chinatown gangland, which was like features in heavily, but there was a Chinatown gangland murder. And then Chelsea Lee was sort of picked out of a lineup down there, all these things that go into the film, like, which maybe you can explain to us, right? Which is how like he got sort of racialized as being Chinese, right? Like in, yeah. in the police investigation, um, yeah. right? Yeah, he he was actually quite the loner in Chinatown, um, as we say in the film, um, just sort of very noticeable because he's the lone Korean, but everybody would see him and sort of knew who he was. Um, and he stood out in that way. Um, this uh, The murder that he was convicted for happened at a time when there was um, uh, quite a bit of um, gang violence between Chinatown gangs at the time. Um, and so um, there were actually, you know, uh, I think more than a dozen uh, murders that had occurred um, by the time this one happened. Um, the reason why police focused on Chul Suli in the first place was because of a gun accident that happened where um, I believe it was a, the day before, two days before um, the murder, uh, Chul Suli had a gun and he, um, he shot it off and the bullet went into his wall. Um, and so the police came, um, they filled out a report. Um, when this murder happened, um, then uh, the police, you know, they, they went back and looked at different past incidents and then they saw, oh, you know, a gun went off here. Um, so maybe we should look into this. Um, unfortunately, ballistics tests show that uh, it was a match that the bullet from from Chulsu's wall um, was fired from the murder weapon. Um, that turned out not to be the case. Um, that turned out to be um, something that was proven wrong after the preliminary hearing, but before his first trial. Um, but unfortunately, the system didn't self-correct. Um, and um, I should also mention that uh, the initial eyewitness descriptions of the killer were, you know, um, a man between, uh, you know, five, six and five, ten, um, unclean shaven. And Chosuli was clearly a shorter man. You know, he was around five, two and he had a mustache. Um, so on that alone, you would think Chosuli would have been eliminated. Um, also, you know, K.W. Lee, who, who investigated this case, he said, you know, when he went into Chinatown and started talking to people like people knew who the killer was, you know, and he was he was a, a Chinese man and he actually was taller, like, you know, close to 5'10 and and was clean shaven. Um, and he would he even had like a nickname after the, the murder. You know, people called him killer. Um, and, you know, Ronko Yamada, <laughs> one of the activists in our film who, who also befriended Chil Suli. Um, she says in our film, right, people knew that the Korean didn't do it because, you know, it was, you know, it was not something that a Chinatown gang would have hired a Korean <laughs> to do to do this, this kind guy. of murder. Right, and they yeah. all knew him um, as the Korean, right, because exactly. he was like the only Korean. Yes. And so, like, yes. one of the things that struck me about the police investigation, which is something that I think Tammy and I are quite familiar with as, you know, just reporters, I'm sure you have been as well, too, Julie, which is that there is this tendency when something happens within like an ethnic neighborhood or an enclave where like anything official, including many journalists, right? If they're white journalists, like the only people who matter are the five white people who are there, right? Because they can speak the language. They it's like a language thing. It's like yeah. cultural, like, you know, like, I don't know, you could you don't have to call it whatever, right? Like uh, to understand it, right? Which is just that if you have white cops, and that you have a whole bunch of people who they don't think speak English, although many of them in San Francisco's Chinatown specifically yeah. would have spoken English, right? Because they would have been there for a long time. Who are you going to go to? Well, you're going to go to the three or four white people who are there, 
who saw it and like all the eyewitness accounts, even though it was like a crowded time during the day where there are tons of Chinese people, all the, correct me if I'm wrong here, but like all the eyewitnesses were, were, were white, right? Like they basically didn't ask any of the The Chinese people around, right? Well, you know, I mean, to be fair, um, you know, it was difficult also to have, um, the local, um, Chinese, um, you know, residents, um, to come forward and to talk to police mm-hmm. um, and just, you know, let alone to serve as witnesses for a trial because they feared for their own lives. Right. Um, you know, they could be victimized by the, the Chinatown gangs because this is where they live, you know? Um, right. And so it was very difficult, I think, also for police to get people to come forward. And and really, um, you know, Chul Su Lee, once the, um, the movement actually was able to hire his own defense attorneys, it was not easy to actually find the Asian eyewitnesses to talk, um, you know, uh, to talk about what they saw. So um, I don't want to act like um, dismissive that that it was just, you know, um, the knee jerk reaction is to is right. to railroad a person. Um, but um, but yeah, that's that was what happened. But you know, it, I think it it goes to show you why we need diverse police forces why we need, why community policing is important to develop those relationships and trust within a community. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, you know, I think also like if there had perhaps been more Chinese American police officers and detectives, um, perhaps, you know, perhaps, yeah, who knows what the outcome could have been. So the outcome itself is that I just want to get through the timeline, you know, without giving away too much of the film and then we can talk about it a little bit else, but like, um, the t- Chelsea Lee goes to prison for uh, he goes to San Quentin for a long period of time, and then something you know something else happens right, which which complicates things even further. So like well, what what happens during his time at San Quentin? Actually, he was first at dual vocational institution. Okay. That was the first prison he was at, all right, um, all right, all right. which yep. actually had the nickname Gladiator School at the time um, because of the uh, gang violence that was occurring there and all the stabbings. Um, so yeah, uh, Chosa Lee was sentenced to life, um, almost four years into his sentence there. Um, yeah, he's having to also negotiate being a, a lone person again. Um, but now within the context of, of prison, um, you had, uh, you know, um, gang affiliations, uh, based on race in prison, um, and gang wars, and there weren't that many Asians there. So not really an Asian gang. Um, so he stood alone once again, and um, you know there uh, there was um, some kind of um, conflict that arose, and he he discovered that he would be um, tar- he was being targeted by the neo Nazi gang, um, and that they had a hit on him, and so um, he is confronted in the prison yard one day by um, a much larger um, uh, white supremacist inmate. And he um, he defends himself. Um, he uh, he ends up overpowering the um, this other inmate and um, killing him with prison-made knives. Um, so um, that leads to him being accused of a second murder, um, and then it becomes a death penalty case for that reason. And um, yeah, that's uh, that that. Uh, that's when actually um, around the time also that KW Lee um, just realizes he needs to, he needs to actually meet Chul Su Lee. Mm-hmm. 
I was curious, like, as you see it, how, what kind of moment in Asian American kind of like identity formation and activism does this take place in? Because a lot of the film too is about these networks, like you mentioned, Renko Yamada, there's Jeff Adachi, there's all these sort of people who we now know as kind of like important figures in that regional Asian America. Um, and it is very sort of like multi-ethnic and sort of like, you know, a kind of like in a way, a kind of like idealized Asian America, you know, because there's people of all ethnicities kind of working towards this particular goal. So, yeah, just kind of like what. And also the your, church. Right. The and the Korean church, church like well, the Korean yeah. church. And as you were saying, Julie, like the intergenerational element, it's just like a very kind of complex portrait. So, yeah, I was just curious if you want to just kind of historically frame that and then also like. Why was this case so compelling to so different groups of Asian Americans? Because it's a rather weird case. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, um, Asian American, uh, Asian American, just the term, you know, was still relatively new yeah. um, at that time. And it really was, um, you know, conceived as a political identity. Um, and in a way, you know, it was almost the perfect storm that came together um, in terms of the timing of this movement. Um, and that's what Jeff Adachi actually told us. Um, for people like him, young um, college-age Asian American activists, um, they had been um, inspired by uh, the um, civil rights movement, um, the Black Power movement. Um, uh, they they also were, um, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, delving into ethnic studies and fighting for ethnic studies, um, affirmative action. Um, they were part of the anti-Vietnam War movement. And, um, but, you know, many of them said like, they were also looking for a cause of, of their own, you know, from our, from, from our Asian American community. And so when, when the Chelsea Lee case presented itself, they thought, wow, this is happening to one of our brothers. You know, this is a case that we could actually, we can embrace. Um, and they were actually quite, you know, um, excited and, and, um, empowered by that, um, in terms of, you know, uh, the Korean American church, I think it was, um, you know, incredibly fortunate that um, that two of the leaders of um, the Free Chelsea Lee movement um, in the Korean American community were J.U. and Grace Kim, and they they were already um, connected with the Korean American Church. You know, these sort of unusual middle aged um, Korean immigrants who um, also were quite progressive um, in their politics and would even think to. Um, embrace the case of, uh, of a Korean American who, as I mentioned earlier, like was no model minority, you know, he had a criminal record at that time. Um, but still, you know, thought that they, they, this was a case that they, they should take on. Um, and they had that kind of those, um, that kind of credibility within the Korean American church, um, to be able to convince, um, congregations to, to attend, um, these courthouse protests um, carrying signs, you know, saying justice for Ch Chosu Lee or, um, you know, Chosu Lee is innocent. Um, you know, just picture it like these Korean grandmothers, you know, in their traditional Korean dresses yeah. holding these signs. Right. It's, it's, it's quite unbelievable. And I often say this, this story has a mythical quality to it and you almost have to see it and hear it to believe it to believe that this actually happened, that this is part of our history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was totally, I've been spending a lot of time looking at like every bit of archival footage basically that exists for Asian people between 1950 and 1975 or something like that. 
And like, you know, like there's a lot of stuff and, you know, I think that all of it needs to be excavated and presented in, in documentary form, just because it's such an important part of the history. And, um, you know, to me, just personally, it's very powerful, right? Like, so I worked on this film and, um, a lot of what we're talking about is like sort of the Taiwanese middle class that comes to the United States. Right. And so there's all this footage of like middle class. Taiwanese American people from Taiwan who like moved to the United States, right. And, um, live in the sixties and seventies. And it's like, it's stuff you've never seen. And that's how I felt about your film in a lot of ways, which is that, look, I've seen every photo of the third world liberation front known to man, you know, I live in the same city, right. Like I see it. I like, I can walk to the ethnic studies library at Cal, but I had not seen this footage of, you know, old Korean women in like Hamburg, you know, like sort of, with these signs and like these like shoes basically, right? Like who are, mm -hmm. I, like you said that like they must be the most politically conservative people like out there. If yeah. I know anything about old Korean men, you know, yeah, <laughs> and, and, yeah, and like and like staunchly anti-communist, probably, right, 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 and, right and then right. and then here they are, like you know, standing alongside like these third generation, um, as I mentioned, Asian American radicals who identified as communists. <laughs> so. <laughs> It's 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 um that's why it's so unbelievable um and at the same time it's like that's why we had to we absolutely had to to tell this story mm. um and you know I think it's an interesting point you mentioned about you know archives and Asian American archives and um, Eugene and I actually do talk about that a lot because um, in many ways um, you know this is not uh, the, these are not scenes in history that are footage and stills um, that mainstream institutions are going to necessarily recognize it's important to preserve. Right. And so we really, it's up to like even individual members of our community, like with our home collections to actually actively preserve them um, because they are an important part of history. Um, and we were just tremendously lucky that there were so many people tied to this case who did keep material, you know, whether they oh, so pictures and photo it. negatives okay. and, and yeah. Um, you know, pamphlets that they kept or even Ronko Yamada, uh, the, act the activist in our film, like she she had even kept trial evidence boards, you know, right. in like oh letters wow. with Chosu Lee. Um, KW is just an, you know, amazing pack rat. He doesn't throw anything away. And he also has multiple <laughs> copies of everything. Oh, and yeah. so he, he was a, an incredible source. And I also want to mention like um, a broadcast news reporter, um, Sandra Jin, who um, she's the one who made the first documentary film about Chosu Lee back in 1983. And it, it ended with his release from prison. But if she had not fought tooth and nail, you know, at her network to be able to tell, you know, <laughs> tell that story, get that footage. She conducted all those prison interviews, you know, many of the prison interviews you see in our film. Um, if she had not done that work early on, then we would not have a film today. Um, right. So that's interesting. Actually, you know, yeah. yeah. I hadn't yeah. even thought about mm -hmm. that. It's like so weird that there would even be a prison interview. Like, cause at some level, this is, you know, just some yeah, dude, right. Who killed somebody who's in prison, just like many, many other people. And, you know, like there can be political engagement about it, but, you know, people generally don't care when Asian people are doing political engagement, at least, you know, on, on the news broadcast level. Right. And so like that. So it was one, it was one reporter back then who was doing all these interviews then, huh? That's okay. That's great. Yes. And yeah. there was also yeah, actually Elaine Kim, um, the professor from Berkeley. Oh, right, right. Asian yeah. Studies professor, yeah. And she yeah. actually conducted some of those prison interviews as well for um, a show called Asians Now at the time. 
Um, oh, but, wow. You know, again, my, my co-director likes to call it an underground archive um, that we, we came upon. And that's just like all these individual Asian Americans mm-hmm. who knew this was an important part of our history and actually did preserve um, material they had. And, and that's what made our film that's possible. Amazing. Yeah, Jay. I also wanted to. I also wanted to just add to what you said. Like, and credit K.W. Lee. I think is the one through his stories that politicized the case. Right. You know, because like you said, it could be. Oh, you know, who cares? Um, but he he wrote um, uh, two front page stories initially. Um, the second focused on uh, you know all the holes in the criminal investigation of the case and the police uh, work and the um, the DA's case. But his first story was one that humanized Chosun Lee. And um, it made people feel like, you know, this could be your son. This could be your brother. This could be your grandson. Um, By talking about just, you know, this bewildered 12-year-old boy who comes to this country from Korea, you know, um, reunites with a biological mother that he doesn't really have a a pre-existing relationship with. Um, you know, she's working two jobs. Um, he's getting bullied at school, um, cause he doesn't know English. And, and, you know, he's also like a smaller, a smaller kid. Um, and he's the kind of kid who fights back, you know? Um, and then, then, uh, you see that, you know, he, he has a tantrum and then he's, uh, the vice principal calls the police instead of disciplining him within the school. Um, and then that leads to his first, you know, time in juvie. And so you see like the, the clear connection with this school to prison pipeline we hear about so much, right? But in the case of Chosu Lee, my, my gosh, he's even uh, put in a mental institution, right? For a time and, and they think he's, he might be schizophrenic when in fact he just couldn't speak English. Right, right, um, yeah. And so yeah, with, I think KW right. like really, and, and then, you know, and then, uh, you know, then this, this incident happens with, with um this horrible um, injustice of, of being wrongfully accused and convicted. So, you know, I think KW really, um, he sort of, by telling um, Chosu Lee's stories in this way, in such a humanizing way, um, I think that's what helped people embrace this cause as well. Yeah, I've, I don't know, Tammy, I, I'm sure you feel similarly, but, you know, that his story is something that if you're like a Korean immigrant about me and Tammy's age or, you know, like like over the age of 35, 40, like, uh, you know, it's very like, you know, people like this in your personal life, right? Like kids born out of wedlock, um, you know, like basically have to be abandoned in Korea, grow up with some other relatives born during the war, right? Like, I mean, my parents born right after the war, they're about, uh, they're, they might be a year older than Chelsea Lee would have been, right? I think they're 71 now. But, um, you know, like you made this choice to show what Seoul was like back then, right? Like in the film, right? Like, and I thought that was a really interesting choice that you made because, and it's one that actually, you know, I felt was quite masterfully done and really affected me a lot personally, because, you know, like that's actually also history. I think that a lot of second gen Korean Americans who are watching the film, they might not really they might know, but they don't, maybe they haven't seen it, you know, like they don't, maybe they haven't seen like the destruction and the poverty that their parents grew up in. Um, and that you have all these lost children like Chosu Lee, and then you have people like his mother who are making choices. She married a American GI. That's how she got in the United States, pre heart seller. Um, she left him back in Korea with, I think her sister, is that right? Or like, uh, yeah, so her, uncle, her right? sister's right. family who actually like, um, they, 
they they took him in as one of their own, you know, and I think that actually he received um, unconditional love from that family. Um, and so it was quite painful, I think, then to be severed from them um, when his mom um, wants him yeah. to, to come to America to be with him. Um, and and it seems course, like his you know, mom was quite cruel to him all through his life. You know, yeah, I think we, we, we hope people won't be too judgmental of her because she was also a victim of herself, Right. you know, being, being banished from her family when she got pregnant out of wedlock. Um, and, and I, you know, I think she really did have the intention of wanting to give him a better life and, and knowing that this was her son and, um, feeling like, she, you know, she wanted to give him a better life in America, but, but unfortunately, um, she was so deeply scarred herself. Um, and a very damaged woman, obviously. And um, I don't want to give away our ending, but you know, right. you'll see later in the film also um, what she was dealing with um, in the context right. of Chelsea being her son. Um, and so I think we hoped, you know, um, you know, she, we couldn't we couldn't spend a ton of time humanizing her character, but we do hope audiences w- won't um, pass judgment on her, but will understand like she too was a victim in a way. Right. I mean, it's like the people in this film have just had sort of unconscionably or like really difficult lives. One of the things I was curious about was, you know, like many people will disagree with me and you might disagree with me, too. But I think that like the telling of Asian American history now has like certain high points, right? Like uh, Third World Liberation Front, International Hotel, Vincent Chin, right? This is not part of it, like you said, right? This movement. And it's interesting to me why it's not, right? Um, because first of all, they succeeded, right? They won, right? He was he was actually released from prison, you know? Like, right, overturning like two murder convictions. Right, that's crazy to me. It's like, whoa, these like Korean grandmas Ever. like exactly. held up some, they did the impossible. Held up, held up some signs and this and this like dude who spoke broken English, like or had spoke English with an accent, like wrote these stories, like, you know, like KW Lee. For any Asian American or any Korean American journalist should be like the number one hero, right? Like, I mean, like for me, it's just so inspiring to even think about. Like I get emotional thinking about it, you know. I wrote him some emails back in the day and he would just wrote he like wrote me back in all caps or something, you know, and he was like, Yes, was like, and that's because <laughs> that's because he actually is shouting. He's always okay. shouting. Okay. <laughs> It's accurate. <laughs> yes, it's accurate. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, why do you think this hasn't, why do you think this is like, you know, it takes film like this to surface this to a lot of people? Like, why isn't this, as, yeah. why isn't this discussed all the time in the same way right. that Third World Liberation Front is? Yeah, you know, um, my co-director Eugene and I have to actually talked about this a lot. And we, we think sometimes, you know, we Asian Americans, we're sort of, you know, we fall into our own model minority myth sometimes. You know, and um, this is a case um, that is very unique. And it was, you know, arguably the first pan-Asian American social justice movement, successful one of its kind, certainly of its kind, you know, as we mentioned, uniting Korean immigrants with third generation Asian Americans. Um, And so in that sense, yes, it it should be um, taught. It should be just Asian American Studies 101. Um, But it, it got messy the case got really messy. Um, they succeeded, but then what happened afterwards, after Chelsea Lee's release? Right. He stumbled right, yeah. and struggled, fell into an ad- addiction and criminality. Um, things got really messy. Um, and sometimes we feel like when things get messy, then we don't want to touch it anymore. Oh, it's not, 
you know, um, it's not uh, that clean case that we want to cite um, in, in our history books. Um, you know, Chul Su, even, you know, even he spoke about this um, when he was still alive. Um, and he was asked about like, why, why do you think people don't learn about this, but they learn about Vincent Chin? And he said he thought it was because, you know, um, the Vincent Chin case was cleaner, you know. Right. And Chulso even blamed himself a little bit. He said, because of my mm-hmm. failures, you know, to live up to the expectations, um, what happened, um, that's probably why, you know, um, he's not seen as clear a victim. I guess, as someone like Vincent Chen, the, the victim of a, a hate crime murder, where you could say clear, very clearly and cleanly that he's a victim. But with Chelsea Lee, you know, even, you know, before his, his stumbles post-release, you could also look at him and say, hey, he had a criminal record. He was a he was a street kid. You know, yeah, he was he living life on the margins. He, yeah, he wasn't an undergrad at Berkeley. <laughs> right, right. And they took upon his case. <laughs> or but, he wasn't like I, an en- engineer, like, you know, like Vincent Chin yeah. was, right? Like, but, like, but that's yeah. why But that's why I think that's what makes this case so remarkable to me and why it brings tears to my eyes. Because here was this person, you know, um, first of all, a man who suffered more pain than any human being should have to endure in a lifetime, really, when you look at the full arc of his life. And then along comes this journalist and this group of people who look upon this poor Korean immigrant street kid with a criminal record who's no model minority, and they actually tell him, you know, you are actually worthy of our time, attention, love, and care. Um, And that's part of our history. You know, that's part of our Asian American history. That's part of our American history. That's part of our human history. Um, And that's the kind of, I think, history that can arm us you know, and it arms our consciousness. And it, I think it affects, you know, how we see ourselves even, and maybe even our roles in creating a more just society. I found about, about KW, you know, I met KW at age 18. I found out about this case at age 18 and it affected my whole world. I, I decided to become a journalist. Um, after that, I, I wanted to especially um, tell Korean and Asian American stories. Um, and, you know, to learn that there could even be um, a Korean American, like wrongfully convicted in our American criminal justice system. And to learn that at a young age, um, and then to learn like there could be a Korean immigrant journalist and a group of Asian Americans who actually fight the system and tell them you did wrong. And we're going to write this wrong. Um, at a time when Asian Americans had so little political power. I mean, that just changes your whole world. You know? Right. Right. You know, yeah, I, I was a registered Republican at the time, honestly. <laughs> You know, so but it funny. just it just changed my entire world <laughs> and 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 my principles, you know, um, and how I saw my role in it. And so I know the power of the story and what it could do for others. I mean, I'm not I'm not the only one. Um, look at what it did for a whole generation of young Asian Americans who worked on the case like Jeff Adachi, you know, where where they went on to to become the public defenders. You know, they went on yeah. to um, become leaders of nonprofit agencies that that help our youth or um you know, that just, um, that worked toward the public good. Um, there, there's, there's really, it's like a who's who of like <laughs> Asian Americans in leadership among, if you look at the activists and what they went on to do. And so um, that's the power of knowing this story and knowing this history. Right. We, I think like, uh, I do hope that it becomes part of the canon, you know, that it gets added to it just because I think it counterbalances a lot of the problems that, you know, that Tammy and I, for sure. But, you know, a lot of other people I think have with the sort of Asian American history, Asian American studies canon, which is that 
there is, despite whatever politics it says, there is this model minority part of it, right? And that, um, you know, like for it to be more true to its, if it is anti-carceral, right? If it is, if it does say things about the criminal justice system, if it does say things about class, if it does say things about people who are not just post-1965 H-1B visa people, you know, like then... This case seems to have all of it, right? But it just, uh, it, it's, um, yeah, in that way, it was very powerful, I thought. Yeah, and the great thing is, like, we have been getting um, such a great response from a lot of professors of Asian American studies, um, as well as even, um, uh, you know, law schools and um, lawyers. Yeah, um, they're all interested in using this film um, to teach their students and teach their lawyers and law students about this case, um, about this history. And so in that sense, like we're, we're super grateful. Um, and, you know, honestly, we feel like we're fulfilling a wish of Chosuli himself. You know, um, I think, you know, if you look at the last act of his life, you know, what was he doing? He was spending it speaking publicly about the movement and really trying to um, uplift and, and, and praise um, the incredible people who, who rallied to his cause, um, knowing he was um, an imperfect symbol. Um, and um, Was he also, though, campaigning against prisons? I mean, it sounds like he was talking a lot about the prison industrial he, complex. He was, and also, um, you know, death penalty as well, the death penalty mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, you know, he was, uh, I think, yeah, one of the, one of the very few people who, um, who was, you know, exonerated and released from death row. Sure, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there was definitely that uniqueness. Um, but yes, he, he, he actually wanted, he was also trying to advocate for Asian American um, incarcerated people. Um, he wanted to start a foundation um, for them after they came out of prison because he knew how difficult reentry was. And so actually that was one of his dreams. Um, mm. But yeah, again, he, he was, you know, spending the last part of his life just trying to call attention to um, to this incredible movement, because I think he knew that there could be a legacy, you know, now that new generations could be inspired by this case. I was wondering if you could talk, Julie, a little bit about the involvement of Sebastian. Um, so for folks who haven't seen the yeah. movie, um, there's a kind of narrative device that's used of like voiceover in which like an actor narrator is reading from what I understand to be Charsuli's memoirs. Um, and mm-hmm. that actor narrator is somebody I had recognized from his involvement with the Bard prison initiative um, named Sebastian Yoon. So I was wondering if you could talk about him and like why it was important for him to be involved in this. Cause there's a sort of redemption arc within the redemption arc of this film almost. (laughs) No, you're right. Yeah. No. um, Sebastian Yoon actually was discovered by our um, amazing producer, Sue Kim. Um, She happened to attend an event um, for um, a documentary series called College Behind Bars. Mm-hmm. And that series follows um, uh, incarcerated men and women who take part in the Bard Prison Initiative, which allows them to take college classes and earn their degrees from prison. And Sebastian was one of the people followed in that series. Um, and he was at this event speaking on behalf of that series. Um, Sue said she was admittedly shocked to see uh, a Korean American representing that film. Um, typically, um, you know, um, if you if you are in those spaces, you you hear you know you see more. Um, it's more of a black and brown space, and you you rarely see Asian Americans. 
Um, so she was surprised to see Sebastian representing the film. Um, and then she was just really moved by him. She said he was so honest and open and genuine. Um, and uh, she also felt like there was something about him that reminded her of Chul Suli, um, that kind of innate friendliness that K.W. Lee talks about in our film. Mm-hmm. So she, yeah, she, she, she told Eugenia and me about Sebastian. We watched the series. We were blown away by him. Um, and so um, we reached out and um, he responded pretty quickly and um, was surprised that an Asian American team was, was making a film about a formerly incarcerated Korean American. Um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but, you know, he, he was, he was very much interested in, in joining um, our project. Um, and I, I want to mention a, a sort of a neat little um, sidebar to this is that he mentioned um, that he knew of me and he said that um, he used to subscribe to Corium Journal, the magazine oh. I edited from prison. And, really? Um, wow. Yeah, That's and nice. he said that um, he wrote a letter to the editor and I published it and it was the highlight of his year. And wow. so I went back and I found yeah. the letter because I, I, and I remembered like there were a handful of um, incarcerated Korean Americans who would write to our, our magazine. Um, and so I went back to see which, which um, letter it was and it was like from a decade ago and um, it was the most beautiful letter and I couldn't believe that this was the same person. Um, he wrote, you know, at the time he was almost five years into um, a 15 year sentence. Um, he had gone in when he was 16. Um, he said that prison could be such um, a stoic, depressing environment. Um, and then another incarcerated Korean American happened to show him Coriam Journal one day. And so he started subscribing and he said once he started reading our articles, he just felt some some light and some joy and also a sense of community because there aren't that many mm. Koreans in prison. Um, and um, and then he also said, I hope your magazine can do something. I hope, um, I hope you can help educate our community um, that we're not all model minorities, that there are others like me, you know, young people just running the streets and not having enough guidance and support. And we end up making bad decisions and leading dangerous lifestyles and they can end up like me. Um, and he said, I can't do that from behind bars, but maybe your magazine can. Um, and I, and I just like, I just wept, you know, when, when I read this, because, you know, I feel like now um, working with Sebastian, him joining our project, um, we are able to fulfill that mission together that he wanted to do, you know? Right. And I, I want to mention that, you know, Sebastian not only was the narrator, but he, he helped us develop the script for what Chelsea Lee says in our film. And, and it really helped us flesh, flesh out um, Chelsea Lee's story. Um, and I'll say that when Sebastian joined us, it felt like everything fell into place. And, um, you know, he, he was able to, for example, help us understand like what incarceration is like, you know, and that dehumanization um, that occurs. And it's not just prison violence that Chelsea confronted, you know, but it, it was that depression, yeah. the loneliness, the isolation. And then also that kind of like um, burden of like not wanting to show your, the, the people who care about you on the outside, how hard it is for you, you know, because you don't want to bring them down. Um, you know, and it was hard for, um, Sebastian to, to do this because he was only released from prison in 2019. And so we, we realized like he was in a fat and in a way re-traumatizing himself, 
um, in, engaging with us like this. And, and in fact, when we were recording some of our voiceover, sometimes he would be in tears because it was so hard. Um, wow. But he yeah. told us the reason he was willing to do that and to put himself in that place was Chol Su Lee is no longer with us. And he felt an obligation to make sure somebody stood up for Chol Su. And he wanted, when, when audiences watched our film and saw how Chol Su did stumble and struggle after his release, he didn't want people to be so quick to judge him and just be like, why did you like disappoint this whole community, you know, that you owed your life to, you know, why couldn't you just live a straight, normal life, you know, for their sake and pay them back. He wanted them to just look at Chulsu with some kind of empathy and understanding. Right. right? Well, I think the and, film and, does mm-hmm. a very good job, uh, really through his own words and his own writing, yeah. uh, explaining what prison takes from people. I agree. Just to wrap up, uh, can you just remind people where they can see the film? We saw it uh, through a screener, but it's going to be like on PBS, you said. Is that right? Like um, yes. at, at theaters, yeah. right? People have a number of opportunities to watch it. Um, first, on August 17th, there's going to be a nationwide special one-night-only screening event at um, over 180 theaters across the country, um, including in the suburbs, like in at multiplexes. Um, if you go to FCSL underscore film, um, We'll have a link um, to our movie free Chelsea Lee page. Um, we're also going to be, um, we're still at the uh, IFC Center in New York until um, Thursday, August 18th. Um, August 19th, we're doing our theatrical release in San Francisco at the Roxy. Uh, August 26th, we're doing our theatrical release in Los Angeles um, at the Lamelay Royal. Um, we're also going to be um, streaming on movie. Um, our distributor um, has been pr- tremendously supportive. Um, as well as on PBS's Independent Lens. Great. Um, Wonderful. Yeah, I, I don't know. I encourage everyone to come go see this film. Um, I don't know. I thought it was quite powerful and great. So, uh, yeah, thank, thank you. you for coming on the show. Um, thank you so much. Thank you, Julie. Congratulations. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for listening to our show. Uh, If you'd like to support us, you can support us on Patreon, where you can look up TTSG Pod, or you can support us on Substack at goodbye.substack.com. Either way, it's about five bucks a month. You get access to our Discord, our book clubs, all the stuff that we do. It also helps support the show so that we can keep going. Um, And we'd like to thank uh, Julie for coming on and talking about this excellent film that I think you should all go and see. We'd like to thank our producer, May Schatz, as always. And uh, Tammy, until next week, uh, you know, do we have our special, special, special guest coming on next week? Is that when he's coming in? um, Yes. Okay, so next Next week, week. you're going to have the most special guest of all time. (laughs) (laughs) What a teaser, no pressure. Who is it? Kim (laughs) Jong-un? You know, Andrew Yang. Yeah, Andrew Yang, Kim We tried to get Andrew Yang on the podcast forever, and in the end, what happened was that I went on Andrew Yang's podcast, which you know doesn't help our That's podcast right. very much. About that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Okay. Until next right, week, I'll talk right. to you, Tammy. All right. Bye. Bye.